I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Tim McIntosh. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader and being incurable readers and so forth. We are here to discuss the things that we read, well, the things that we liked that we read in 2020. It is now early January 2021, so you know, it's time to time to look back a little bit before we look we look forward for the for the new year. First of all though, wise. Heidi, in one sentence or in three key words, describe your holiday. Oh man. <laughs> I really want to say that it was the best Christmas ever. Um but I think that but it, it wasn't, was so I won't. <laughs> no, it was it was not the best Christmas ever. Um, it was small, it was intentional, and it was um, contemplative. Three key words. All right. Yeah. Tim, do you have any words you'd like to share with the people? You know, mine was really quiet. You guys know my dad has been pretty sick, and so it's just kind of hard. My sister came over. Um, my dad's sister was going to come over, but she had a little, we thought, COVID exposure, so she... Hmm couldn't come over. So he was just really, it was peaceful and quiet. Hmm. David, how was yours? David, give us three or four. David had a, yeah. David (laughs) had an exciting Christmas. Oh, my Christmas. Okay. COVID. Mm. COVID Uh, Christmas. I've heard of it. I've heard of it. Yeah. 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 Um, Which meant that it was extended, which isn't the worst thing. And um, it was, it was, Pleasant, actually. It was pleasant enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. I got I got COVID, so I had COVID over over Christmas. So basically, right before, you know, like the week before Christmas, I got it. Had it. Was kind of like laid out on Christmas Day and Christmas Eve and all that. Um, but we did some things with the kids, and then once we were okay, like well enough, and past kind of the quarantine period, we we did something simple with you know my uh, my in laws and then my parents. Of course, then yesterday we were doing something for my with. I, with my parents for Christmas. And while that happened, their house flooded massively. So maybe I should have added ceilings. Oh yeah. There's a hole in the ceiling. Yeah. It was, it was pretty bad. It was a lot of water. It was the most water I've ever seen that quickly in a, in a home. It was, it was pretty wild. So they have a plumber and insurance person there. So that was, that was, it was interesting. (laughs) That was an interesting way to Twenty twenty one coming in strong. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, speaking of, uh, speaking of which we're going to be discussing lots of books this year on the show. Um, we've got to finish up one book that we had planned for 2020. And that of course is Willa Cather's Death Comes for the Archbishop. So we're going to start that later this week. And I think the plan is for us to record on Thursdays. Is that, that's right, guys, right? Is that mm-hmm. confirmed yeah. on that? So confirmed. we'll record on Thursdays. So then the idea is that hopefully we'll get the show up on Friday. So that is our new year resolution, our new year plan. So you can plan accordingly. But we did want to get you this episode uh, where we talk about our reading from 2020, you know, as kind of a, you know, we, we didn't get anything up to you for the last little while. So um, we'll make it up to you this week with two episodes. So let's, let's dive right in. Uh, Tim, we're, we're each going to share five books that we liked, yes. that we read in 2020. We didn't really discuss um, how we're going to divide them up. You, you know, they can be any genre. We're not going to do two episodes, one on fiction, one on nonfiction. Um, we didn't make fiction lists versus nonfiction lists. Each of us kind of had our own parameters. But what I do want to ask you is, are there any books that did not make your list, but that you still liked? You know, maybe they weren't your top books, but they were things that um, they piqued your interest. You enjoy reading them for whatever reason you know, you still think they're worth mentioning and you can just mention the titles and you don't need to go, go deep on them. But are, are there any, anything like that, that that you'd like to share? 
Honorable yeah, mentions. I, honorable mentions. I, I have one honorable mention. It's called Isaac's Storm by Eric Larson, the same guy who wrote hmm. Devil in the White City and Dead Weight. I like his work. Uh, yeah. Oh, he's so good. Yeah, new one out this yes. year that was okay. really popular. Yeah, I read that one also uh, called The Splendid and the Vile about uh, the bombing of London during World War II. It was also really good. Um, but Isaac's Storm is about the biggest hurricane, biggest, the biggest storm that ever hit the United States, I, I guess, during recorded times. Um, it was a hurricane that hit Galveston, Texas in, I think, 1901. And it was, like all of Eric Larson's writings, just really, just really wonderful. And by the way, Dave, when you're talking about, like, I saw more water come in, there's a moment in the book where... And it's attested to by multiple accounts. The water in downtown Galveston at night rises four feet in eight seconds. Mm. Like yeah. that's in a, a township. That's a lot of four water. Four feet across a township. Anyway, Heidi, do you have an honorable mention, Heidi? Uh, my honorable mention is Station Eleven. Mm. Um, which Such everyone in the whole world read this book and I didn't even hear about it until the pandemic. And yeah, then I read it. Pandemic book. Yeah. And I loved it. So good. I would have loved it under any circumstances. Um, and again, it was one of those books that was like sweeping the nation and somehow I just like never even heard of it. And then everybody was reading it this year who hadn't read it before. So I picked it up after I read The Glass Hotel, which is her new book and also very good. Huh. Uh, and I reviewed that book for Forma. Uh, and then I read Station Eleven and loved it. And that's definitely on my honorable mention list hmm. for sure. Hmm. And then I also, every year I pick like an author to like deep dive into. And this year it was Wendell Berry, um, which I hadn't even I mean, I didn't know there was going to be a pandemic and we were all going to be stuck at home living the simple life. <laughs> um, but Wendell Berry was just such a pertinent, like relevant and encouraging author to have read in 2020. Um, so over the summer, I particularly remember sitting outside reading poetry and essays by Wendell Berry and revisiting all of his novels and just being so encouraged and thinking this is like this we're all kind of being forced into the life that he's advocating for. Like, how are we going to rise to that? And mm. so I, I mean, Wendell Berry was just, who's a great, great author. So he's on my, anything he writes, I just love anyway, <laughs> as we all do, but he's on my honorable mention. I'll mention two. Um, one is a book called Wine Simple. It's by Aldo Salm. He's, the um he's an austrian guy who lives in america and is i believe the only master sommelier that is in the united states uh, and he has a book called wow. wine simple which is all about it's a kind of fun um book that explores wine it teaches you a lot like um so if you want to if you want to learn about the varietals all the regions how to pair food and stuff it's a great little book to check out it's a fun one um and then also there's a novel by Chris Beha, um, I think is his name. Um, but the title of the book is called An, Indi An Index of Self-Destructive Acts. Now, I didn't, put this, I didn't put this on the list for a couple of reasons. One, I offer this as a recommendation with reservations because this is an, a, 
this is not a book for your children. I'll just put it that way. There is some language in it and there is some, at least allusions to, to a certain sort of content in it. It's a long book, which is not something I usually, you know, I'm famous for, uh, <laughs> thinking long books are not usually not loving, necessary, but this is one that's, it's a book. Okay. So an index of self-destructive acts is, um, it's the best book that I've read where people spend most of the book arguing with one another. Like if you want to, if you like to sit around with people and talk about ideas, talk about sports, politics, anything like that, this is a book for you. Um, it's a book about people from different classes kind of coming together. It reminds me a lot of kind of like a, um, if you take Elon Waugh, and you take Mad Men and put them together in the 21st century. That's what this book reminds me of. So, wow, you're um, selling it well. I'm intrigued. But, but again, I offer it with reservation because of, of some of the content in it. But it's the best book of dialogue that I read this year. The best book about people arguing. And it's got, um, it's got stuff in there about journalism and politics and sports and all kinds of stuff. So if you can find that somewhere. In fact, what we're going to do is we'll put, a, um, we'll, put a, we'll put all these books on goldberrybookshop.org as a list. And so we'll make it easy for you to find them, even if you don't want to buy them there and you want to buy them from a local bookstore or something like that. We'll just put the list there as a point of reference for you. I mean, you can buy them there and we'd be grateful, but you also don't have to. You can buy them wherever you want. We'll just do it as a point of reference. So, um, so those are honor- honorable mentions. Now, let me ask you each this now. Did either of you put a book that we read on the show on your top five? Mm-hmm. I did. Okay. Okay, um, okay then hold off on that tim did you i put one from the plays the thing on my list okay i purposely didn't put any books from the show on my list but i think it was more because i was trying to make an interesting list and not because there's lots of things that we read that i liked but but we've talked about them so i didn't so i was just going to ask if if any of you you know wanted to share anything but since you have them i'm just going to say that i actually probably would have included um well, Crime and Punishment is probably on my list. You know, it's one of the great novels ever. So I would have felt weird not doing that. But then also, Anne of Green Gables, reading that with you guys as this pandemic was hitting in March and April was a great time. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, felt, it was a great, you know, great to read that as a community. And so I wanted to say that that was one of my top five reading experiences of the year. I think just doing that together. Um, and so I didn't include that on my list, but I did want to mention that. So do, did I either of you believe. have anything like that? Yeah, go ahead, Tim, go. I just can't believe that we were doing Anne of Green Gables this year. It, it feels like a million years ago to me. Does it feel more yeah. recent to you guys? No, it, th- there's this kind of sense of infinite time connected with 2020 for sure. And But I do kind of mark it in my mind, which I always do this because I'm just a reader by you know, inclination and great love, like, but I, and professionally, but I do kind of mark the time by books. Like I, mm. I can even look back on the year and think what I was reading at certain times as the year was unfolding and how it was influencing the way I think about it and respond to it and all that. And Anne of Green Gables, I think is one of those for sure for me too. Very connected with this year. Yeah. It's interesting how, how we remember reading experiences are so tied to specific things. It's like, I was reading this book talking about how memory develops and how we, one of the reasons that they think that you can't remember before you're like three or four years old usually is because our brains don't have a capacity to process um, space yet. Hmm. That's part of our brain isn't developed. And so our memory is usually tied to 
um, like we we tie things to specific experiences usually related to place or something going on in the world around us. So like a lot of people can gauge time by uh, like sports events, right? <laughs> like you can be like, oh yeah, that Christmas was when I can time it because I remember that season, they, your team was either really good or really bad. Like people just have, if you're really into sports, if you're really into movies, we, we, there's all these like spatial markers that we use and we can't, we don't have that ability to do that when we're little. And I think reading is very much like that. I remember phone calls by where I was when I was placing or taking the call, which is thoroughly with the person on the other end, you know, like, Hey, Heidi, remember that one time that I was at Gilly's talking to you on the phone? No, you don't. You don't remember that. (laughs) You remember the conversation and where you were when we were having, or she might not even remember the conversation, but for whatever reason, (laughs) the moment, like something about it. it, And I probably don't remember it. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I mean, the weird thing is that like, it can be, it could maybe what you were just, were talking about like that you had to go to the, like when she was going to pick you up at the airport, right? Like it could have been an innocuous thing, but you remember it because there was something that was memorable about the space. And so your brain processed it and lodged it away somewhere. Um, okay. Let's talk about our list then. Heidi, you go first. Let's count. Did you rank yours in an order or did you just have five mm-hmm. books? Okay. Do your number, yeah. t- Tim, did you rank yours in an order? Five to one? No, I did not. I could do that. Um, do it. Do it okay. right now. <laughs> okay. Read, I didn't really go. either, but I can do it as well. So Heidi, yeah. what's your fifth one? You're going to give us time to my, do some number right five. Yeah, okay. Number five. Well, my number... So I picked... Uh, each of them I chose for a very specific reason uh, on my list. And my number five is a book called, but wasn't titled... Um, originally, it's called Centuries. And it's by a 16th century... Anglican mystic priest named Thomas Traherne. Um, I heard about Thomas Traherne from a book that I reviewed for Forma called The Poet and the Fly, which is also a really interesting little book about different, it's seven different poems about flies. And then his, Robert Hudson, the author's thoughts on these poems and about the fly and what it means in poetry over the centuries is a really cool little book. But I, I learned about this author from the book, The Poet and the Fly, and I had never heard of him before, and I immediately went out and bought this book. So it is a – Thomas Traherne was, like I said, an Anglican priest and a mystic in the 15th century – excuse me, the 16th century. And um, he was writing about the time of the metaphysical poets, hmm. um, and his work is very metaphysical in nature, but it's not poetry. It's it's just essays and meditations and thoughts on spiritual things and the connection of spiritual things uh, to physical things. And so uh, this book, Centuries, is a collection of his, of his work that was, and he had been lost. Like nobody had ever heard of this guy or read this guy. He wasn't famous in his lifetime. Uh, his, uh, his manuscripts were collected in like an old attic somewhere and found in the 18th century. And mm. then whoever found them recognized this man's genius um, and collected his works and published it. And then it had a profound impact uh, on 20th century writers like Thomas Merton and C.S. Lewis. They all read Traherne and worked his writings um, and his thinking into their own particular work. You can particularly see him in Thomas Merton really, really clearly allusions to Traherne all over the place, which I didn't know until I read him this year. So it's a collection. It's not very long. It's not a super thick book. Um, And the meditations are about like a third of a page to a half a page. And they're just, you know, how they used to write back then, just kind of 
Aristotelian kind of thoughts um, and <laughs> logical arguments made about God in this like beautifully poetic language. Um, and he writes a lot about how the physical world uh, reflects the truth and is like this kind of metaphorical mirror into the, the deep things of God. It's really beautiful. I loved it. Um, I'd never heard of it before. And I like that kind of serendipitous falling upon a new work. And that's why I picked it for my, um, on my top five. So Heidi, before we turn it over to Tim, did you, in your top five, what's your, what's the breakdown like in terms of genres or, um, the kind of books that you, that you found yourself? I picked listing? a couple novels, uh, two, uh, I guess, um, and then one poem and some nonfiction. Okay. Right. Representative uh, group. Yeah, Tim. What about you? How did your How did yours break down? One play, one book of economics, three novels. Okay, okay. I have three novels and two books of history. Oh, which nice. is interesting. I, and my oh, list actually, one of mine is a book of history, David. Sorry to interrupt. One of my sure. three novels reads like a novel. It's a book of history. Were you guys when you looked at your list? Were you like, huh? Didn't expect these to be the books that I would have chosen. <laughs> or did you? Were you? Did you know all along? I knew it all along. I okay. just knew it. You ran into along. some hard books, huh, Tim? I, I did. I did. What about you, Heidi? Yeah, did you, were you surprised, Heidi? Um, no, because the books that I read really stuck out. Yeah, I kind of knew right off the top of my okay. head. Although okay. I always kind of lose track of the beginning of the year. Um, yeah. I need to do a better job of recording what I read so that how, I can okay. refer to it. I know this isn't a side, but how do you guys record? Like, what's your, do you keep a journal of what you read? Do you just check your Goodreads? Do you... What do you guys do to keep track of the what you liked and what you've read? Heidi, what do you do? I used to. I used to make a reading list, and I was really faithful with it. I did this for like about a decade when I made a reading list at the beginning of the year, and then I was faithful to to check it off the list and make it my way through it. And I haven't done that for a couple of years. Um, and I have also not logged everything that I've read. So I've kind of fallen off the keeping track wagon. Hmm. Tim, Tim, do you do anything? I'm not great at it. I'm not great at it either. My mom, when I moved home in a casual conversation, said, you know, like, how many books do you think you've read? I was like, I, I don't know. And she said, have you ever made a list of all the books that you've read? And I thought, wow, that, is a, that would be a challenge. That would be a really fun challenge. And there's, I think there's no way to do it with my like, kind of um, handcuffed memory, but it would be fun to try. You just need to have the right memory markers. Yeah, I do. I do. I need to be like recollecting what spaces I stood yeah, where in. Where were you read them? Yeah. Books. Right, exactly. Yeah. How about you, David? Do you track them? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a list maker. Oh, so, you are? Yeah. I, so I track everything. <laughs> it's a little... I'm never, and I'm never happy with the process ever. So I just spend the whole year trying to figure out the best way to keep a list. In fact, I now have lists of ways to keep lists. It's kind. Of, it's kind of a. It's kind of a. That's it's kind of a that problem. Might be considered obsessive. Yeah, I by think, some. I'm like uh, right. Theoretically, hypothetically speaking, someone could consider me unhealthy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, Tim. Let's do your number five. What's your number? What's your? Uh, I'll be brief book? because Heidi and I have done podcasts on Richard the mm. Second. I'm so excited that man. you picked. Oh man, Richard. Heidi! I remember when we started the podcast. Heidi was talking about how much she liked it, and I had I knew Richard the Second, but I did not know it well. And during the course of our podcasting, I realized why she loved it so much. It's, it's a masterpiece. fabulous it's play. It's absolutely absolute fabulous. Yeah. 
And I believe hey, those, I believe those episodes are coming, right? They I are. We we have waited to release them. Right. Yeah. Have you recorded all six episodes? No, we still have a little bit of work to do. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay. So yeah, that's something for people to look forward to is Tim and Heidi talking about a masterpiece. Oh, it's so good. And it's so under it's so underrated. It is. Like, it's it not really read is. enough. It's just an absolutely genius play. So I love that you picked that. Sarah Jane and I were um lauding Coriolanus, which we did earlier this year. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like another underrated play. It's in so underrated. Times. And mm-hmm. I'm adding Richard the Second like as a near for me, a near second in on the list of um, underrated Shakespeare plays. Okay. Right, what's your number five? <laughs> yeah, David. My number Dolphin. five is a book that I actually did write briefly about for Forma way back in this spring, I think. And it's called uh, Dreams of El Dorado by H.W. Brands. I found myself reading a lot this year about American um, history or even historical fiction from the period between say 18 between the the um war of 1812 and the civil war that mm. that like antebellum period um i have no idea why just found myself there and the dreams of dreams of el dorado is basically a book it's about it's a history of the west um and it focuses a lot on people like the mountain men and the explorers and people you know it's not a book just about cowboys for example in fact i learned that basically the thing the thing we think of when we think about cowboys was really something that existed for about eight years in the 1870s oh. or 1880s and somewhere in that range. And um, it was kind of actually a short-lived thing considering that it's basically what everybody thinks of when they think of the West. Now, obviously there are still cowboys, but in terms of the version that we think of that showed up in the movies and on TV shows and in books, that was not very long lasting. So this book is a really comprehensive history of how the West became the West. Um, leading up to about 1900. And it even ends with a lot of interesting stuff on John Muir. Uh, Muir, Moore, however you say his name. Um, so it's a really it's a really good book. H.W. Brands is a great history writer. He had a book that came out uh, earlier this year. And the name is escaping me right now, but it's about Abraham Lincoln and John Brown. Yeah, so John Brown and Abraham Lincoln and their kind of uh, similar mission, but different approaches um, so, and he's also written a biography of Grant and, um, something about the founder is great history writer. So if you ever see something of his, pick that up. Okay. Heidi, what's next for you? All right. My number four is a book I've read many, many times in a book that is well talked about, uh, around, uh, Circe and these parts of humanity and, uh, interest. <laughs> and it is the Iliad by Homer. Mm. Last year, I also, I put the Odyssey on my list. Um, I anticipate the epics will show up again. I read the epics. Actually, I listen to the epics every year on my own. And then I teach them usually, you know, every year as well. Um, But this year, I go back and forth between the Iliad and the Odyssey as my favorite epic. The Iliad is never my favorite epic, although I love it and it's wonderful, but it's never my favorite. Um, And this year I've decided for sure, until my mind changes again, that my favorite epic is the Iliad. Um, And because I also read a book that I'm going to talk about a little bit later, which is my number two, um, I read a book on trauma and the impact of trauma on the human soul and human action and then how to recover from it. And I kept seeing it. I just kept seeing it just in perfect, just perfect clinical 
persuasion in the Iliad, um, like the mm. impact of trauma on these warriors that's described in this, you know, thousands of years, even before, or a thousand years before Christ was born, before we knew anything about trauma, um, you can see it just play out. In yeah. Homer knew what it was. He just didn't call it oh that. My, yeah, exactly. And, and he, the, the story of Achilles and his rage Mm. I mean, that is the story of the Iliad, right? Seeing Omuse of the Rage of Achilles. And um, as I was teaching it this year, we were, I was focusing so much on it with, with my students about the, the impact of this, of this war and a life of war on the psyche of this man mm. who's this epic hero. And you can just see, see it play out and the torment that he endures. Um, and the, so anyway, I was just so moved by that particular level in the Iliad. And of course, the great books are bottomless. You can never get to the end of them. There's, there's always something new and something rich to contemplate in this particular year. Um, I read the Iliad twice. I listened to it once, and then I read it very carefully with my students. Um, and, and that was the, the thing that stood out to me is like the, the individual soul of a man who's so impacted by, by this, by a life of war and trauma hmm. and how that's Heidi, captured by this ancient writer. The last time that I was um, in New York a couple of years ago, I was invited to attend this, um, a, a reading by a guy who New York City has kind of asked to lead local readings, Brooklyn, Manhattan, et cetera. And he uses classic works to address contemporary ills. So um, he used one of Euripides' plays to talk about drug addiction. And he invites a lot of people who are in like recovery from drug addiction or alcohol addiction to be part of the whole kind of talk back. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he's used portions of the Iliad and has invited like vets who have suffered PTSD to be part of a talk back. So I, I just think that idea is really fascinating, really fascinating. Yeah, it is. I have so much to say about that, but I can't say it right now. So <laughs> but, but I'm glad you mentioned that. It's a, it's a very big deal. Like the, the classics are so human. And Sounds in like a you should write an article about culture, this. I, yes, I, I probably should, or a lot more. But in a, in a culture that's becoming increasingly less human, we're trying to mm. push out the classics, right? Mm. And that, but they are the things that explore these. They are the books that explore these questions better than anything that's been written since. So anyway, David, what's your number four? Well, we skipped him. Oh no, we skipped him. My, num my number four is, go ahead, David. No, I was going to say I can go, but if Tim's not ready, but we, we I don't. I'm ready. My number okay. four is uh, a book of economics called Development as Freedom by Amartya Sen, S-E-N. He is an Indian-born economist. I think he's at Harvard now. He was at, he's been at Oxford and at Cambridge. Uh, this book won the Nobel Prize in Economics. And it's, it's as far as I can tell, um, it's probably the book of the last generation to read as far as economics goes. Now, I am not an economist, 
the reading is difficult. That's the only reason it's not higher on my list. Is but as far as like the general impact of the ideas, this book should like should be number one. You guys know me well enough by now to know that I'm kind of a very suspicious of the kind of false dichotomy in economics that um, like public opinion kind of presents us. You've got kind of the libertarian view, a complete hands off the economy. You have a more like um, managed economy that's more of kind of like leans towards socialism and the redistribution of wealth, et cetera, et cetera. I'm pretty skeptical of like the kind of antagonism between these two. And this book for me is this kind of way through that morass. Development is freedom. The, uh, real briefly, What's the author's I, name again? It, sorry. Amartya Sen. His last name is S-E-N. Amartya. Uh, there's a kind of chicken and egg problem of which comes first freedom for a populace to pursue their ends or enough development within a populace, like access to clean drinking water, food, roads, and infrastructure. Um, that would be called, that would be the, the development side of the equation. And he's just making this case that like trying to kind of lean one way more than the other way is a false dichotomy. You've got to kind of bring both freedom and development to large populaces at the same time, if you're going to kind of feel the benefits of both freedom and development. Mm. Um, when was this written? Did you, did I you think say? 88 is when it won okay. the Nobel Prize. Okay. It is okay. not an easy book to read, but he does use lots of classical allusions. He's very philosophical. So it's not just a numbers book. I, I, I wouldn't have made it through if it was just a numbers book. Um, and he gives lots of examples of his upbringing in India, like, you know, states of severe impoverishment, states mm. of contrasting great um, opulence and wealth. Mm. So I, I think as far as an economics books goes, it's probably the, it's, I think it's pretty readable. Okay. Um, okay. That brings me, that's now brings me to me, right? Brings us to yes. me. Yes. Okay. My fourth book is actually a, piece of historical fiction which i have not read a, a lot of historical fiction outside of like you know shakespeare and homer in a long in, in a while um but it is called the cold millions it's by a novelist named jess walter he wrote a novel five or six years ago called beautiful ruins which is one of my favorite um recent books um and this is a book that takes place in about 1910. And Tim, I thought of you because it takes place in Spokane and in um, Seattle and in Portland and in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and it's actually about these two brothers and this other these, this cast of characters who get involved in what are essentially the wars between the unions, the early unions of the time, and the miners, the people who own these giant mines. And then how the the local government gets involved and so there's these two kids who are essentially uh tramps they're essentially hobos uh, well one's it's this guy who's like 17 and his older brother and they get caught up in the sort of political machinations of between these unions uh who are in theory for the common man and these really wealthy people who are in theory being protected by the police and it's all based on real real events real riots real um real there's all these real people and then the, the two main kids are sort of the fictionalized characters and the writing is amazing um it's um it's got you know just enough adventure and violence and 
fisticuffs, um, but also really well-drawn characters. And Jess Walter is someone who's known for kind of being very compassionate and really creating characters who, who feel very human and very real and who you, you can't help but sort of find appealing. Um, so it's one of the best books of historical fiction that I've, that I've read, I would say. What's the title um, again, it's called It's called The Cold Millions, hmm. and it's by Jess Walter. Um, I did not necessarily expect it to be on my list, but um, then oh, as I was reading it and when I, when I finished it, I was like, this is, this is the kind of book I like. <laughs> so, um, okay, Heidi, you, you're number three. Uh, my number three is my Close Reads pick, and it is The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. I love that book. I've always loved that book. Um, but I loved talking about it with you guys. And I saw so much, like so, so much more shadings to it and nuance to it. Um, and, you know, we had those conversations about um, the relationship between Bendrix and, is it Henry? Um, and, I, I, I just, that's one of those books that I would love no matter what, but it is talking about it reinforces to me how much I believe in reading and community when there's a, a book mm-hmm. of, of such deep nuance and complexity um, and uh, scope for contemplation. And there's so much, I realized as I was reading it, how much I had interpreted it in a very dogmatic way that you guys challenged multiple Mm. times. And so I saw it differently through your all's eyes and that was very compelling to me. So, um, Mm. and it's just, in my opinion, one of the best apologies for the existence of God in literature. And Mm. I, I absolutely, I, I like love it just for that reason. Um, Mm. Plus all the other, you know, interpretive questions that we talked about. That was a good one. It's strange to hear you describe yourself, Heidi, as having a dogmatic opinion. Like I think (laughs) of you as as having like, you know, you're a woman of conviction, no doubt. Mm -hmm. But I've never thought, Heidi, you know, that dogmatic one. (laughs) (laughs) It's really really jarring to hear you say that. Yeah, well, and I didn't didn't realize that. I think that's what I love (laughs) so much about reading in community is I think I know the interpretive questions and then... I already filter out what I believe to be true. Like it had never even occurred to me that Bendrix and Henry's relationship could be construed positively. Mm -hmm. And so I, and it it wasn't even a question that I interpreted. I just assumed it. I just assumed it was bad. And so hearing you guys challenge that with, with your own convictions and me thinking, I, wow, I was really settled on this issue, not intentionally. I wasn't trying to be dogmatic. I just, assumed and and whenever that happens i'm i i like love that i love that jarring thing that happens in my head of like oh there's another way of looking at this um and and i think that's what reading in community does for me it hopefully it makes me more humble reader so anyway i remember that heidi i remember when we kind of like david and i were like ah, i think it might be a positive relationship and i remember you being kind of like wait really could that be? Yeah. And I think you convinced me. I mean, I still think it's open to interpretation, but I was like, your case was really compelling. And so I, yeah. Well, that's why I think there's a lot of value in like not coming to something as like 
don't know the word is an expert or something, just kind of mm-hmm. bringing your first impressions. Like I think a first impression or the discussion of first impressions is really important because, you know, if you bring, if we, if we each bring how we felt about something or, or how something struck us or, or how or the impression that we had, then we're not, we're not bringing that like, this is the only way to look at this book or this is, this has to be the interpretive revelation or the interpretive mode for looking at this book. What we're saying is, this is how I experienced it. What if we put these different experiences up against each other and see what sticks? Um, mm-hmm. And so sometimes like when we have these conversations, maybe it sounds like one of us is saying, well, this is the way it is. When really what we're saying is, this is the experience that I had. Let's try to throw these experiences as against each other and turn and figure out where the conversation goes. Because we're not here coming to this podcast saying, let's come up with definitive answers for everything. What we're saying is, right. let's have conversations and see what happens. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of like, well, that's why we kind of talk about ourselves as like enthusiasts, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, there's, we have varying degrees of expertise on stuff. Like Tim's got a higher degree of expertise on Shakespeare than me, for example. Heidi's got a higher degree of expertise on trauma books. <laughs> um, true. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? So like yeah. we have varying yeah. degrees of expertise on stuff that we can bring to the conversation. But ultimately what we're doing is we're saying, we love books. Let's see what happens when we talk about right. them. Because we're reading for wisdom and virtue. We're not reading to be book smart and or to become scholars. Yeah, so yeah exactly. exactly. We're amateurs in the true sense of the word of love. Love. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So like I guess I guess what we're saying is if you want us to be experts then <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it might not be your podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh Tim, I think we're on you for number 3. Number 3 for me. So my my top 3 are all really thick books. Mm. I, so the page counts are 1000 1100 and 900 pages. And I Is it are they just War and Peace Anna Karenina? And War and Peace is, and is one of them. I won't reveal where it places on my list. Um, but the the third place is a big, thick book of history, Truman by oh, yeah. David McCullough. Yeah, yeah, won the Pulitzer. Right? I had never read a David McCullough book before, and my dad is always raving about David McCullough. What a great writer he is! Oh yeah, he's and, dad. He's dad. Great, great dad author. Yeah, he's a great dad author, and so I was like, you know what? I need to like get on the David McCullough train. So I looked up which was the highest rated of his books. And he's got, you know, a dozen praised books. Truman is the book that is most highly praised, like with a bullet. And I was like, I don't know anything about President Harry Truman. There's like this sort of darkness between FDR and probably Kennedy. I get like, "Uh, I don't really know what's there. So it's time for me to tackle. Harry Truman is such a fascinating, like, a great president, not like pretty good president, but a great president. And he, I'm just going to try to enumerate the things that my poor Harry had to deal with. End of world war two rise of the Soviet union and communism. Um, the atomic bomb and atomic power Korea, the Korean war was horrific. It was so terrible. Um, the list goes on and on and on of the major, decisions that harry truman had to wrestle with and you know i don't know that i agree with harry truman on everything they did but like a real person of integrity and honesty and um kind of forgotten in u.s history at least by me maybe everybody else knows about harry truman but i did not know much about him 
and the book reads like a novel. It's just <laughs> so it's yeah. so well done. So mm. high praise for Truman by David McCullough. Mm. What's your number three, David? My number three is a, also a book of history that reads like a novel. Um, this is a book that came out this year, and it's called The King of Confidence by Miles Harvey. You know how Joseph Smith founded Mormonism? Most people think of Mormonism as being associated with Utah, but he actually was not from Utah. I think he was maybe even from upstate New York or something. Yeah. And then when Mormonism was taking hold, a lot of it was like in Illinois. So he gets killed, and then the Mormon church has to decide what to do. Brigham Young, of course, is the one who he becomes the the big figurehead. But there was another guy. His name was James Strang. And to this day, there is a small group of, um, like a small sect of Mormonism called the Strangites or the Strangites. And there may be 300 left and they're living up in Wisconsin. But what happened was Brigham Young became the leader of this big group of Mormons and they went west and settled in Utah. And then James Strang stayed in Wisconsin. But James Strang, by all accounts, really didn't care that much about Mormonism. He cared about having power. And he basically was a con man. And so he used Mormonism, this is around 1850 maybe, to basically create, basically lead this group of, it's almost, when you read the book, when you read about the history of it, it almost has this cultish vibe. Um, And so this book is is a history of him basically conning all these people and his life, his death, his rise to power from nothing. And it truly reads like a novel. Miles Harvey is an incredible writer. Um, if you find these sort of con men stories interesting, this is a real one. And it also is about the rise of celebrity, the way celebrity became something that was covered by the media, how they began to sell papers, the way um, American media rose. So it's not just about this one guy, but it's about the development of American culture, American pop culture, and like the, the notion of celebrity becoming something that people actually cared about. So, so on the one hand, it's about this one con man, but it's also about how he used the notion of celebrity to, be, to maintain his you know, con man status and how the sort of notion of you know, a confidence man came to be something that was uh, evolved in, in, in uh, the public sphere. So it's not about Mormonism and Brigham Young and those guys, it's about this one guy who was like, no, I know better. And the thing is, he kept doing things like, you know, Joseph Smith said he had these visions, right? And he, so that's part of, and Brigham Young did the same thing. But then James Strang would do the same thing and say he had all these visions, but they were like way weirder. And then people, and he would just manage to convince people that his version of Mormonism was more right than the other one. And so he like formed an, he like basically formed a community on an island in the middle of Wisconsin. Um, there's just all these crazy stories about things that he did. Um, so if you're interested in just like crazy characters and sort of off the beaten track history, this is of the book for you. What's the, what's the name of the book and the author again? The King of Confidence by Miles Harvey. And again, history book that reads like, reads like a novel. Great. Writer. I went through like a two year kick of reading about Mormonism. Um, have you heard of this were, guy? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, I mean, that is a cluster storm in history. There is, there, I'm, there is nothing like it. Like there's, it is an abs, it's absolutely like, um, nearly unbelievable. This, the history of this, like the, how this religion took hold in America and the impact that it had and the things that they believe. And it's, and, and 
the things that take into extreme, I mean, this isn't characteristic of most American Mormons. Right. Um, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. But if you read this book, you're not going to be like, I now yeah. understand the average right. Mormon that you're going to be like, like the LDS yeah. is something different from these Correct. like extreme fringe right. Mormon groups. And the same thing we, with some of the fringe, yeah. like Christian. Absolutely. Groups. Absolutely. Anything fundamentalist taken to extreme is ends up being crazy, but there's yeah. something particularly about the, this religion and its fringe groups in America. It could have only is, happened when it did. It's, it's unbelievable. Like it's, yeah. it's one of those, like it couldn't, Nobody would read about it unless it was true because it's so unbelievable. So anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in finding that. Book. It could, I, I it could only be on American. This. Yeah. Um, while we're on the kind of like crazy cult train, I listened to a podcast <laughs> about Jim Jones and Jonestown. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Like I knew I, I, I had framed Jim Jones as sort of like, you know, like, religious zealot who kind of mashed up Christianity with his own, you know, weirdness. Oh, I had no idea. It's so yeah. much more fascinating than that. And it's so dark. It is so dark. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the, the podcast is called God's socialist. It's terrific. Mm. Terrific. Um, it's interesting because in uh, both the King of Confidence and well, it talks in King of Confidence about how like Marx was writing about the same time and how one of the things that was going on in, in the country that lasted, that has always been a part of it is like, how do we, how do people who have nothing get taken care of? And so one of the reasons they were talking about how the Mormonism spread and grew, even in the more general LDS, what is because they created communities for people who had no community mm-hmm. and, and how a lot of the stuff that they were talking about was like the same sort of things that Marx was writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, some of the same stuff comes up in the cold millions. Cause it's about, you know, like it's as communism and socialism was spreading in early 20th century America. Um, so anyway, um, that same thing comes up in this podcast, David, God's socialist. Richard the second comes up in Richard. <laughs> in, in, um, <laughs> in God's socialist. It's, it's this kind of like upswell of Marxism and the beginning of Jim Jones's career. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. That's what's kind of, I think what's so riveting about Mm -hmm. these stories as the beginnings are sometimes like they're kind of like heaven on earth in some ways. And then there's this inevitable demise that you've got, you've got the leader at the top who needs everything and creates a little Island off the coast of Wisconsin. Anyway. Hey, Heidi, what's your number one? Well, my number two. Oh, your number two. We're on number two. Yeah. 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 My number two is the body keeps the score by. Mm. Oh yeah. Um, And that is. Yes. A, I have now listened to it twice and read it once. Um, I mean, you all, everybody knows that my background's in psychology and I'm always looking for ways to connect psychology with um, literature and, you know, build something out of that. And so, uh, and this book is phenomenal. It's very readable um, and incredibly well-researched. In fact, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote the book, he's the guy in trauma. He, he actually was one of the pioneers uh, in even creating the PTSD diagnosis um, as a diagnosis. And he was one of the very first. Uh, I'm really, 
I was hoping. 90s? No, well, this is maybe a second edition then, because this has been updated with all these like new. Oh, I mean, even when I was in grad school, um, a lot of these therapies hadn't been developed or were considered okay. very fringe, okay. kind of like, okay. you know, kind of like now chiropractic is accepted as medical practice, but, you know, 15 years ago, even people then thought it was just quack medicine, but it's been shown <laughs> to be effective. Um, and that's a lot of these trauma therapies are the same way. Um, mm. So, uh, and it is, it is not... It's one of those everybody should read it because most people are traumatized and just don't know it. Um, and so, and if you're interested in psychology, this is very readable. It's not a scholarly text. It's a popular text, um, but it's very well supported by research. And he, he does talk about that in the book. So I loved it. Everybody has recommended it to me and I've never read it before. And I finally... I finally picked it up and, and it's led, led me kind of, the reason I picked this for my, on my list is because it's, um, um, it's, it's one of those seminal texts on a particular issue in popular square, not, not necessarily in academia. There's lots of other seminal texts in academia, but this is in the popular sphere that then has led me to other things, um, and kind of renewed my interest in this and given me lots and lots of ideas on mm. how to apply this in a professional, mm. um, context with even what we're doing here. And so I just, I, I was riveted. It's fascinating. And I think just incredibly practical. And I, and I hope even healing because now we have all been through a collective trauma that's impacted people in different ways, some people more than others. Um, and, and shared trauma either fractures or either fractures community or brings community together. And I think this book has a lot to say about that. Hmm. The Body Keeps the Score, it's by who again? Bessel, B-E-S-S-E-L, uh, Vander Kolk, and it's K-O-L-K. Okay. So he's a, yeah. The body keeps the score. Yeah. Okay. A trauma survivor himself <laughs> grew up during World War II, um, saw an incredible amount of terrible collective and individual trauma and then mm. dedicated his life to healing mm. um, after seeing, um, after as a young psychologist treating uh returned veterans, Vietnam veterans who are getting such poor care because mm. nobody even understood what a flashback was. So they were giving these people, these traumatized soldiers, uh, they're re-traumatizing them in therapy um, and, and committing them for having psychosis when what they had was PTSD. And he mm. was like, they do not, they're not psychotic. They're having something called a flashback. So he was like a pioneer in understanding trauma back when they were just re-traumatizing soldiers when they came back and slapping these psychotic diagnoses on them and locking them up. And um, so anyway, it's a great book. The number of veterans who have like been positively benefited from his work. I mean, can you even count? Yeah. And it's, I mean, largely because of his pioneering uh, theories of trauma therapy that you have exactly what you talked about earlier, which I didn't want to say so at the time. But um, <laughs> now I can circle back to that and say it's largely because of what he has done. And then he started something called the Trauma Center that does all of this um, scientific research into trauma therapies. Um, and it was, the, it was the Trauma Center that came up with the idea of using Greek tragedy Hmm. Um, and theater as a trauma therapy in modern hmm. settings. Awesome. Um, awesome. And and so he talks about that in the book. He talks about theater. He talks about um, all these different, really just fascinating and very very human 
um, not, it doesn't have a clinical feel to it, just a very, very human um, kind of telling of the stories of these trauma survivors and how he wants to help them. Um, and so anyway, it's great. That's great. That's great, Heidi. Uh, number two on my list is Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, David. I just, I, just, I just wanted to warm your heart. Uh, it's my second time reading Lonesome Dove. <sighs> it was better the second time. I just can't. I love it. And I think, I have two thoughts. I think we should do Lonesome Dove maybe as a Patreon podcast on Close Reads, or maybe just as a part of the regular show. And uh, my second thought is, I think I might put it up there for the American epic. I might even put it higher than something like Huck Finn or Moby Dick. I mean, I know, like I'm messing with like two classics, but Lonesome Duff. What a book. I read um, a lot of Larry McMurtry this year, and I could have put any of his books on my list. And like, I could read Lonesome Dove once a year, and every year it would probably be the I would probably have to put it as the book that I most like. I just didn't put it on the list this year because it's just one of my favorite books, you know, it's like regardless right. of the year. So, um, so I didn't actually, um, I didn't include it on my list, but I'm right there with you, dude, right there with yeah. you. So good. It's a, uh, it's a hard book. I'm going to read it this book. year. I've still not Copyright read it, but Tim I'm going to read it so that I can know you guys better and America better. <laughs> <laughs> We need to talk about, I mean, like off the air, we need to talk about whether or not to do it as, as a close reads. Yeah, I think, I think doing it as a, it's so long, doing it as a Patreon one might be. Might be a good idea. Might be yeah. a good idea, our, lo- our long book side. Um, okay, so my number two. Uh, also Western, actually. It is called The Time It Never Rained by Elmer Kelton. So this is an, an underrated classic Western. Elmer Cl- Kelton wrote many, many books and short stories. Um, He's kind of one of the godfathers of Western writing. Uh, But this is a true literary classic, in my opinion. And it's about an aging rancher in the 40s, 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s, somewhere in that range, I think, who is living through a drought. And his son, his only child, is not particularly interested in being a rancher. And so this book was a book that I read in the spring kind of and into yeah like the spring when the when we were all living through the early stages of the pandemic and literally everything was shut down and it it was about what do you do when your world is like the faucet is turned off right how do you ranch how do you make a living in the west during one of the worst droughts ever and this was a this the drought really happened um and it's in west texas i think and it's poetic and lyrical and the characters are incredible and it's got um, it's kind of, it's not a cowboy book in the sense that you think of, there's not a cattle drive, right? There's not a bunch of gunfights. It's about an aging, an aging rancher who's looking at both his way of life and his livelihood possibly fading away. Um, and it's, it's just brilliantly written. Um, and you can get it in a little cheap paperback. You can get nice hardcover versions of it. Um, but the, it's a book that I think is, is a, a very underrated uh, if you like Larry McMurtry's books, then you should um, you should definitely read it. Now, I want to also say I almost did, I almost cheated and made a tie here uh, because Larry McMurtry's first novel is called Horseman Pass By. 
It was made into a movie with Paul Newman called HUD. Um, I didn't know a, that. Yeah, yeah. But it was, um, which is a good movie. It's a great book. Highly recommend you read it. I was going to have it tied with, with the, time, the Time It Never Rained, just you know, to have two little Western spot there. But that would have felt like cheating. Yeah, it would have felt like cheating. So great book. Okay, that brings us to our number ones. Heidi, what is your what was your favorite book of 2020 that you right. read in 2020? This one is so easy. This is my number one by a mile. The Bible? I Are you going to say the Bible? The Bible. Oh my gosh, what if I said the Bible? <laughs> hilarious. We would just, uh, you'd be disconnected from the call. And then... <laughs> Which is not to say that you shouldn't we read love the, Bible. the Bible. I do. The Bible is my numero uno forever. So. <laughs> okay. My number one book of 2020, like I said, Good by a moon. mile, is The Aviator by Eugene Bodolajkin. What is this okay, book? Go on. Go on. This is interesting. I loved this book. And I have heard such mixed things about this book. So Eugene Vodolajkin is a living, uh, living Russian author. He writes in Russian. His books are all translated. Uh, what we read is translation. Um, and he wrote Loris, which was oh, really? through the whole Circe crowd. Um, like all of our people read this book and loved it. And it's a remarkable book. Loris is a remarkable book. And I'm going to reread Loris now after reading The Aviator twice um, in two weeks. Um, Heidi. The Aviator is so, so good. And I, I have heard, I don't know why people don't love it as much as Loris. It's a remarkable book. It's Oh, it's so good. It's about a man who wakes up in 1999 um, and he has amnesia. He doesn't know who he is. He's told his name and that's Hold it. Hold on. This is an amnesia book? Yes. <laughs> well, then say no more. <laughs> I don't even care. This is, book is so good. No, so I'm being when, serious. Yeah, no, good. I'm glad you're being serious. I thought you were like, that's a trope that's way overdone. But no, it's so good. It might be a little overdone, but this book is brilliant. So he wakes up in 1999 in a hospital uh, with one psychologist and a nurse attending him alone in a room. And then, and they tell him his name and that's it. And then he starts to remember his life. And the book is written as uh, clinical notes. He is given a journal and a pen and he's just told to write down whatever he remembers about his life. And that's the whole book. Um, and it turns out that what he remembers is um, being a young man at the turn of the century during the Bolshevik revolution. So there's this mystery to it. Mm. Uh, to the story. Um, and he, and then there's this contemplation of memory and what it, uh, what it means to be human. How does memory make us who we are? Um, who are we when, and who are we when we are out of our time? Um, and what does that say about history? Uh, and it's, it's just an absolutely remarkable book. I, I loved it. I, I read it once and then I just, like closed the book and then opened it on page one and read it again. Um, wow. So wow. I, 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 for all the people who love Dolores, you will love the aviator. You might have to push through a little bit because it's a bit confusing to read at the beginning um, as he's remembering who he is um, and you're finding out the story of his life and how it ends up that he's, you know, kind of reborn in 1999. And um, 
it's it's fabulous and it's very russian just like loris just like crime and punishment if you want to know what it means to be in the russian mind and i i'm more and more convinced that the russians are the most remarkable people on the planet and they have these truths um Hmm. about what it means to suffer that we don't understand in the west um and 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 so I, I I just I just can't recommend this book enough. Yeah, if this year has shown us anything, mm-hmm. it's that we don't actually we don't know, know how, how to, to suffer. suffer. Yeah, but we're about to, right? Like we're we're about to learn as a culture what it means to suffer like that, and I think we should learn from the people who've gone before us. So, all right. Well, with that, with that, that uh, was bit ominous. of prophecy that there, was no, I think it's true. All right, yeah. Tim. My number one is. War and Peace, another Russian book by Leo Tolstoy. I'm going to give a brief apology to some of the close readers slash people who are on the Facebook page. I had really hyped doing a multi-part War and Peace, um, I don't know what we're going to call, what we call it, seminar through um, Circe. But dad got sick right as I was kind of doing all the preparations for that. I think some people bought the book don't worry, you will not be disappointed. There's still like, I mean, I I might still try to tackle a multi-part seminar on war and peace. Meanwhile, if you have time in your calendar, read this book. It is so wonderful. So wonderful. Okay. One more thing to say, Uh, as part of reading the book, I watched the five-part communist Russia movie war and peace um by sergey bondarchuk this is one of the most remarkable viewing experiences i've ever had it's Hmm. incredible The, the battle scenes so basically long story short i think it was made in i can't remember when it was made but russia wanted to show hey we can compete with the united states not only with atomic weapons, but also our ability to make cinema is going to be, it's going to rival Hollywood's. So the Russian government put a massive amount of money into making war and peace. Sergei Bondarchuk is the, um, is the director. The rumor, this is just a little foretaste of how good this film is. The rumor is that some of the battle scenes had an extra had so many extras that they thought that they had 100,000 extras on set to film some of the battle scenes. And they asked the director later and they was like, no, that's an exaggeration. We only had tens of thousands. (laughs) Wow. Oh, I get it. Only tens of thousands. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no unions to no, no SAG cards to deal with in the Russian cinema. (laughs) Communist Russia at that time. Uh, so number one is War and Peace. And uh, if you've read War and Peace and when you try to tackle like a really wonderful film, so get, get the Soviet version. It's stunning. So Tim, yeah. um, in The Cold Millions, yes. this is another thing that ties it to you. One of the two brothers, the older one, fancies himself, like he's basically a homeless guy, right? But he yeah. carries around... He, he carries around three of the five. He, there's a there's an old five part edition 
you know, War and Peace in five yeah. volumes, basically. Yeah. And in the book, he carries around three of them. He has like the first one, the third one, and the fourth one. And he has no money to buy more one. But like one of his dreams is to have all five volumes. And he mm-hmm. like, he kind of fancies himself as a, you know, sort of wannabe intellectual guy. He loves books. And his favorite book is these three parts of War and Peace, but he's never read the other two. So um, that, that factors into the book. So That's it's, fine. A, it's another... Besides the Pacific Northwest stuff, besides your attachment to the unions, um, it's uh, also also your attachment to war and peace comes up. In the, I actually don't know if you're really in the unions. You might you might be totally anti-union <laughs> for all we know. But uh, <laughs> I'm so into unions. <laughs> I mean, we're, I'm we're, into. we're all into <laughs> union, just in a general notion, like yes. people being unified. But I don't know, you know, if if Tim's big into labor unions, he he might be. So that. I'm not going to even weigh in on that. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> going to weigh in on that. probably wise. Okay. Number one, David. So my, my favorite book that I read this year, other than Lonesome Dove, of course, is... Um, the Bible. <laughs> what? The Word of God. The Word of the Holy Bible. No, it is called Invisible Ink, and it's by a French novelist named Patrick Modiano. He, has, he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, in fiction a couple years ago. And he writes these sort of riveting, mysterious, very French novels. And so this is uh, translation. So it turns out all three of us top book, it's a book of translation. Um, and it's a kind of, it's actually maybe only like 180 pages. And it's a detective disappearing person novel combined with a memory novel hmm. and a lot of French existentialism. I'm, and, I'm in, I'm all and in. It's, but the writing is, it's the most beautiful. Like I often have a hard time with translation because I find that sometimes I, it feels translated. This translation is so perfect. And his, you can tell how beautiful his writing, just the hmm. prose is, the way he creates sentences. Now it might be that French is more translatable than say Russian, <laughs> where sometimes it's just that's a that's a the the language works differently than English. Um, but this is it's about this guy who's a private detective in the seventies, and somebody goes missing, and he gets hired to look for this person, but he can't find her. And so then, thirty years later, he's looking back, and he's trying to put the pieces together. Huh and see if he can solve the mystery 30 years later. So it's going back and forth in time and it's all about memory and it's not long. You'll read it. You could probably read it in two sittings, maybe one sitting if you've got a few hours, but it's, it's the kind of book you'll read it and you'll want to go back to the beginning again because you'll be like, what just happened? And you're not sure exactly what did happen, but the writing is so beautiful that it makes you want to go back and read it again. Um, And I got, I immediately went and got copies for the store um, and Mm. I heard about it. I want to give a, um, Shout out to John Wilson, who mm-hmm. is um, one of my favorite book critics out there. He's been doing it for a long time, and he's just got the most interesting, eclectic uh, taste. And he mentioned this book to me, and so I hunted it down, and it's just an incredibly delightful reading experience. So that was my favorite mm-hmm. kind of blew me away. You know, when you have when you come across a book that you didn't expect to be what it was, and the whole time you're yeah. reading, it, you're just like, whoa whoa <laughs> you know that's the kind of experience it was for me now this is probably a book that not everyone will love it is a little bit 
odd. It's a little esoteric. Like it's, it doesn't have the catharsis that a lot of mystery books or detective novels have where you're just kind of like putting all the clues together. And then in the end you solve the problem with the private detective or whatever. Um, it's not like that. It's much more philosophical, you know, hmm. than, than a lot of other books like that. But I think that both of you, especially would be really into this book. And I think a lot of our yeah. listeners would say, well. say the title again, David. It's called Invisible, Invisible Ink, Ink. Yeah. And it's by Patrick Modiano. M-O-D-I-A-N-O. Um, hey, look what um, I'm doing, you guys. Wave. Just check it out. I'm going to get on like the hype train. So for our listeners, I'm going to start the hype train. I just took a picture of the three of us um, recording. More social media. That's more social 2021. Media. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. I really need to get more social media ingested. Yeah. I need to post yeah. more. Start posting on labor unions. That'll, yeah. that'll, get <laughs> that'll be a winner. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I know we got to go. So I want to ask you guys each two questions. Um, how did you have like three to five minutes? Yep. Okay. Um, what is your, do you have any reading? Um, I don't want to say goals. Like don't tell me how many books you're going to read or whatever. I mean, unless you want to, but do you have any reading resolutions for this year? And it could be an author. Heidi, you said you like to deep dive on an author. It could be, an era. It could be you want to read more historical fiction, whatever it is. Do you have just a resolution that you're hoping to kind of tackle this year? Tim, I'll let you go first. Do you have one? I'm going to swerve the question a little bit. I am building an office slash study for myself in the bonus room at my parents' house, and it's almost complete. I will be able to, for the first time in my memory, have all of my books accessible not locked in like a basement somewhere, not in cardboard boxes. Mm. I will have a huge big desk. I will finally be happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need. That's it. I love it. Yes, you will. There this is, is your year. There is so much. <laughs> there is so much we need to unpack. No, I believe it. There's the I'm, word finally. Yep. There's the notion of the big desk and the library being tied to happiness, which I actually totally subscribe to. Right? A lot. Okay. I don't know that we have time to really deep dive. So sharing that at the end of the podcast was probably strategically wise by you. <laughs> Maybe early in um, Death Comes from the Archbishop, I will have finished the work and I can present it to you guys in a co- coherent way. That'll and, match with death comes for the archbishop. Yeah, right. Well. In a in a happy, you'll be you'll be able to express your true happiness finally. Yes, exactly. finally. We're, all, we're thrilled for you. Heidi. What about Let you? Know what it's like <laughs> to finally be happy. Um, <laughs> I have two. One is, um, hold on, I forgot it. <laughs> oh, it's no, really important. You're got, you're, yeah, no, you're really like, going to be successful. That's really sad. Oh, I know. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, my deep dive author this year is Solzhenitsyn. Oh, okay. Um, oh, nice. So, um, I, again, there's that prophetic voice. I think he's very relevant. Um, I was watching the Hunger Games series with my daughter. She just read the novels. And so now she's, and I thought watching. I'm going to read Solzhenitsyn. That's actually true. I was, no, really. Cause I was, I was reading it and I was thinking the entire time, especially the last, the last book, Mockingjay explores exactly Solzhenitsyn's idea that ideology does not define virtue in a country. And, um, 
you know, as he famously said, the dividing line of good and evil goes through every human heart. Wouldn't it be easier if we could just pick a side and know that it was the right side? But everybody is capable of atrocity, um, especially if you cling to ideology and define that as virtue. That's his entire, I mean, that's Solzhenitsyn in a nutshell right there. Um, Man, that is so now. That is now. That mm-hmm. is now. It is so now. That is now. And whenever ideology defines a country, it descends into atrocity. It does. And that's happening. So that's, I mean, that's what we're going to have to reckon with here in the United States. I um, mean, we might be able to derail that process, but only if we believe that, right? So anyway, I'm going to read Solzhenitsyn and, and preach this as much as I can. <laughs> um, and then I'm also going to read more modern books. I'm going to read more things that are being published now. And so, I mean, and David's always a great resource for that. So um, that's, I will that's tell you, I, I read a lot I'm, of old books and I love I, old books, but I want to read more new books. I will tell you, I am now more aware of what is being published <laughs> than I ever have before because it is now my job. Partly yeah. part of part of my, one of my jobs is to uh, be aware of what is being published because I have I, to I'm stock going to shelves. sneak in here and give a little plug for, David and Bethany's bookstore. I just ordered all of my close reads books from the bookstore. They'll be arriving this week. Nice. It's a great way to get out of, well, not just to get out of um, the Amazon orbit, but also let's support David and Bethany's venture at creating um, not just a bookstore, but like a place where their community can gather, can talk about books and talk about ideas and maybe do public readings and have discussions. Come on, everybody. Let's get on the Goldberry <laughs> I just train. bought a whole lot of Sultanitsyn from nice work. Org from Goldberry Books. Nice so. work. Heidi needs to go. Heidi, is there we one book? Is there a book that's coming out this year that you're looking forward to? Have you no, it? because I don't know anything that's oh, right. coming out okay. this yeah, you just So you're going to have to tell me and then <laughs> I will read them. Well, I want to tell you both before so we go. You're going to have to be my book dealer. <laughs> okay, I will. I want to tell you both before you go. Your, one of your favorite authors, George Saunders, has a new book coming out this month. This is what it's called. A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, colon, in which four Russians give a master class on writing, reading, and life. And it's seven wow. essays that George Saunders is writing already on, love on seven different short stories by Russian masters. And he just explores all kinds of things in art and life through them. I think it comes out in a week. So Great. I want wow. everybody to be aware of right A now. Swim in a Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. So, okay, Heidi, farewell. Thank All you right. for joining us. Gotta go, guys. We Bye, might as well Heidi. just, we'll just Bye. go ahead and sign off. So, um, Tim, do you want to add anything? No, um, I got nothing to add. Okay. All right. Well, with that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Curran. Thanks so much for listening, for reading with us in 2020. We're looking forward to reading with you in 2021. And hopefully it will be a year of happy reading. Bye.